0: If you'll turn in your Bibles. Uh, if you want to use the Pew Bible, it's on page 996. But 2 Timothy chapter 3, we'll be reading verses 14 through 17. Uh, perhaps the most famous of uh, New Testament passages about the word, especially about it being inspired by God. Uh, it has the word inspired is what we use, but you could actually use from this passage expired, that is, breathed out by God. That's literally what it says to try to get to the graphic reality that this came actually from the mouth of God, even though he used human instruments. <clears throat> and as I said, I, I wanted to remind us of the beauties and importance of his word. Um, and I'll mention this at the end, but there's a handout as you leave. Uh, it's something that I handed out during the uh, new members class and during the deacon's training. So if you went through those, you already have it. But uh, it's something entitled P-P-U-M-A, PUMA. Uh, it's an uh, acronym for uh, preparing and praying and understanding, meditating, and applying the word. It's just three pages, simple little thing. It, uh, it was published some years ago. In a magazine, uh, I think it could be helpful to you. just a little help to uh, as to how to get into the word every day, um, so that uh, there are enough copies for each household, uh, I think, so don't every one of you get it, okay no all right, second Timothy three. But as for you. Continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Thus the reading of God's word. Now, kids, we've got some words. First thing I want to say is I'm going to go easy on you today. Uh, after, if, you, if you come after me, you know, try to beat me up and stuff like children sometimes do, their pastor. Uh, I don't have my alligator socks on. I don't have my shark socks on. So it's a safer day for you. I just have my penguin socks on. So just to let you know, it's an easy day on you. Now, I've got four words, uh, harder to remember four than three, yet Uh, I think uh, we need to. Wimbledon, like the tennis tournament, tournament, Wimbledon. Then a paper mill, paper mill, gymnastics, and albatross, albatross. Yes, the bird, the albatross. So why go after God's word with all your heart in 2024? Now, the grammar is not great on our outline, but I I, I wanted to say it this way. Because of who it's about, where it came from, and what it does in in, and for us, in us and for us. First of all, why go after God's word with all your heart because of who it's about you notice right here in our passage, Paul says, concerning the Old Testament even, you've known the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. He's speaking of Old Testament, that through the scriptures, you could come to know uh, the truth as it is in Christ Jesus. It reminds us of Luke 24 when after his resurrection, Jesus, with the disciples, opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem, as it is written about himself. And earlier in Luke 24, as he's walk, walking along the road to, Dema, uh, to, uh, to Emmaus, he says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to, them, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So obviously, Luke is saying he reigns through the whole of scripture. And as he reigns through the whole of the Old Testament, he was teaching them what it says about himself, which reminds me of the familiar term that you've known if you read the children's book, uh, Sally Lord jones It's got the subtitle, Every Story Whispers His Name, right? That's, that's how we need to think about the Bible, especially in the Old Testament where we tend to forget it, that every story, every proverb, every uh, prophecy everything has something to do with Jesus Christ, or at least from the New Testament perspective, now must be interpreted through Jesus Christ. So that if you're dealing with a proverb, for instance, about some aspect of of practical life, now you think about it in your new life in Christ, in the spirit, in connection with all the riches of Christ. Uh, there's six passages in Acts where they're proclaiming uh, Christ and they refer to the Old Testament. Uh, The last one in Acts 28, it says, when they had appointed a day for him, that is Paul, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus from the law of Moses and the prophets. This is Christ, using the, I mean, Paul, using the Old Testament to convince them of the reality of Jesus Christ. And Christ himself, this is on page 890, if you want to turn over there, but in John chapter five, the Lord Jesus says this to the Pharisees, the religious leaders, you do not have his word abiding in you, For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. If you you don't believe in me, then the word, speaking here of the Old Testament, it does not abide in you. You've rejected that word. You may know facts about that word. You may have memorized parts of that word. Excuse me, just noticed the unbutton. But that word does not abide in you. How do I know? Because you reject me. And he goes on. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Think of that logic. You're seeking eternal life in the scriptures. They speak of me where you get eternal life, yet you won't come to me. See? You don't love the scriptures. You don't love God. You don't love his word because you're rejecting me and I'm the whole point of that word. He goes on in chapter 5 of John. There's one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you set your hope. So you're thinking, we follow Moses. We're all about Moses. You know who's going to accuse you? Moses. Now that had to sound pretty crazy to them. If you believed Moses, you would believe me for he wrote of me. Now that's true or not. We believe it's true. Moses wrote of me and if you believe Moses, you would believe me. So it's a package deal, you see. You take me and the Old Testament or reject me and reject the Old Testament or reject the Bible at that point. You can't pull them apart. You have the Word and then in capital letters, the Word came, who is the final expression of God's Word. You could look to Hebrews where over and over the Old Testament is used to prove Christ. In the first chapter alone, uh, it's all Old Testament quotes. You can read it sometime this week. It's all about Christ. I'm going to go to the Psalms, the writer says, to tell you about Christ. And according to Jesus and the apostles, you don't get the Old Testament unless you get this, the Old Testament points Christ, And without the knowledge of Christ fully revealed in the New Testament, the whole point of the Old Testament is missed. The Old Testament specifically instructs in the way of salvation, Paul says, through faith in Christ. If Christ is rejected, the Old Testament scriptures are rejected, God himself is rejected. That's what Jesus said to the Pharisees. So if the Bible is not about Christ, then Wimbledon is not about tennis. The Rose Bowl is not about football. There would be no tennis. If there's no tennis, there would be no Wimbledon. If football was never invented, there would be no Rose Bowl, right? If there was no Jesus Christ, not only would there be no New Testament, there would be no Old Testament, There would be no Israel. The whole point of the the nation of Israel was to bring forth a Messiah, not only for them, but for the whole world. That's the whole reason of the existence of Israel. And I think there would be no earth, no universe apart from Jesus Christ because the whole point of creating the world is for God finally to unveil his astonishing love to this world through Jesus Christ. Christ is why anything at all even exists. That's how central he is to everything. So seek Christ. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you cannot, you simply cannot in, ignore the scriptures that contain the gold of Christ. Can you imagine inheriting a few thousand acres of wilderness in California and you take a week to camp Uh, in your new property and you discover a cave and you go in you gather some equipment to explore the cave and on your second day you discover this incredibly rich vein of gold like nobody's ever imagined before right and all you have to do is mine it all you have to do is mine the gold now too much trouble I don't like working in a cramped dark cave with one of those lights on my head no way I'm not about to stoop to using a pickaxe, and I don't know anything about machinery or what to do with the gold once I mine it, and I'm sure I'm not paying anybody to do it. No telling how much that would cost. So all you do is use the cave to give you shelter from the elements when you go camping uh, on your land, and those billions of dollars worth of gold are just sitting there even after you lose your job, after you go bankrupt, after you're homeless, and you're living full-time in the cave. Brothers and sisters, are you going to live and die and not become a student of God's word and not mine the gold that is there? What do we think of gold, (laughs) right? And it's interesting how differently we think of gold and Christ in the word, right? I admit, you know, You get excited, God, what if I won the lottery? What if you got to read the Bible? (laughs) Gold and gold, right? But how differently we think about it. The greatest treasure this earth has to offer, and it's yours for the taking. you don't have to pay for it. (laughs) Will you turn up your nose at this treasure and think of this, brothers and sisters, He specifically has made it available to you English speakers in America in a way he's hardly made it to anybody in the whole world. I mean, just think of that. You're you're some of the select people. He's given the opportunity to even get your hands on the gold. I got used to the smell of the paper mill in Monroe, it was in West Monroe. I lived in Monroe proper. I got used to the smell, and uh, I would only be reminded of it when sometimes we'd have people from out of town that might visit, and we'd have them over for lunch, and then we'd walk out the front door, and they would just be just like, "Good night." What is that? I say, "Oh, that's the paper mill." I don't even smell it, and they say how could you even live here? I mean, they really would ask that. How could you even live here? And they would never, they'd think, I could never live here. And i said, well, you know, you get used to it. Um, but um, what if your friends were visiting you at the seashore and they caught the wonderful smell of the ocean? Or maybe you have a mountain home and they, they catch the wonderful scent of all the, the greenery and the rain falling and just beautiful Sense. And what if they walked out and looked at you and said, "How can you stand this? How can you stand this smell?" You see, there's an intoxicating, glorious fragrance and aroma coming from Scripture. It's sweet and fresh and clean and bold and life-giving. In 2 Corinthians 2, Paul calls his preaching an aroma and fragrance of Christ. Have you caught the fragrance, but you've decided not to live there? You don't like the fragrance. Maybe you and I can get used to that glorious fragrance of Christ in his word, and maybe we can actually learn to desire and love and love that aroma and be nurtured and transformed by it. So who it's about, it's Jesus Christ. And he's there for us in the word. But then also where it comes from. Uh, He does say clearly here, it's God breathed, right? Everything has come from God. And throughout the New Testament, there's reference that the New Testament as well has come from God. God. Paul is speaking here primarily of the Old Testament. The whole Old Testament was breathed out by God. But in 1 Timothy 5, 18, he quotes Deuteronomy along with Luke, and he calls them both scripture. So we understand that the apostles think of even what they're writing and speaking as on the level of scripture. Peter uh, says that Paul's writings are scripture in 2nd Peter 3 uh, many other passages that uh, I put you under oath, uh, oath to read this letter to all the brothers in 1st Thessalonians 5 or exchange this letter with the one I sent to the Laodiceans read this one here and that one there because this is scripture Colossians 4.16, he says, everything is that I write is taught by the Spirit. What we speak, First Thessalonians 2.13, is the very word of God. And on and on. So all the word, Old Testament and New Testament, has come from God. He planned it. He handpicked the men to write it. He created every circumstance of its writing, every motivation for its writing, even the personalities and abilities and feelings of the writers themselves so that William Hendrickson can write, the word is all that God wanted it to be. It has come from him And it's everything he wanted it to be. And again, in talking about value, because it's come from God, it has supreme value for each human being. It's an astonishing discovery of clean, affordable fuel that will sustain humanity for future millennia. It's the equivalent of that spiritually. What would we do if we came upon such a resource? What would we think? What a transformation of the whole world. Even bringing about a kind of healing of the planet, assuming everything they say about fossil fuels true. I'm not making a political statement here, just saying, okay? Given the common view. It is a treasure, a treasure. I love the game apples to apples. <clears throat> you know, the game, you're given, you, you read a... Uh, an adjective and everybody has a group of nouns in their hand and they're going to try to match the adjective with a noun. And it's a really fun game because then the person naming the uh, adjective gets to pick which one he likes best. And sometimes it's because, boy, that's a perfect match. Or sometimes it's because that's crazy or that's weird or, ooh, that's kind of creepy, but I like it. You know, whatever the match is. So for instance, you have these adjectives, smelly, Relaxing, scary, uplifting, shining, boring, lovable, dreamy, graceful, mischievous, manly. And then you have words like this, charging rhinos, six-pack, the South, Batman, the first day of school, milk duds. Yeah, they're paying me a commission, uh, apples to apples. (laughs) But here's one. Priceless, priceless. What's the noun? The Bible, right? Oh, may God give us that sense of the word because it is his word, his word. Finally, because of what it does in us and for us, what it does in us and for us, We see here in verse 15 that it's the means of salvation and that in verses 16 and 17, it deals with every aspect and every task of the Christian life. We'll focus then on verses 16 and 17. Many uh, scholars have commented on the fact that it's basically uh, the first two words have to do with uh, mental, or they have to do with teaching, and the second two words have to do with living. But it goes positive, negative, negative, positive, kind of a, as you know, a chiasm um, ends up where he starts. But the first two have to do with teaching uh, the positive and then the negative. Uh, the negative refuting error. So the idea is to have right thinking and right understanding and right knowledge, but not just bare knowledge, but uh, that always includes right believing and right trusting, right dependence upon God. So that scripture constantly corrects and hones our thinking if we give ourselves to it. It gives us new lenses and new windows by which to see the world. It opens up new vistas to view God and to view life and reality, to view the meaning and goal of history, to view relationships and marriage and family, to view our own hearts, to view all that has happened to us, all that has hurt us, all the hurt we brought to others, all in the light of God's word and all in the light of the wisdom that leads us to rescue and deliverance And renovation and transformation and salvation through faith in Christ. Like Paul writes in Romans 15, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction so that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. There's a central view. You want hope? Can any human being live without hope? No. You want hope? You want gobs of it? You want it overflowing, pouring into your life? The scriptures are for that purpose, as Paul says. They give endurance, encouragement for hope. And the second two terms have to do with living. So it's uh, teaching for reproof, then correction, and for training in righteousness, the negative and then the positive. Uh, So it's teaching, teaching the truth, refuting error, correcting your life and training you in righteous living. So right thinking, right living, get your head straight and your life straight. Right. But the second one, this this idea of correction of restoration uh, of improvement of recovery to a new life. Uh, a child in gymnastics. Now, this was a remarkable thing years ago when my uh, daughter, Anna Kate, was in gymnastics. And uh, she started, though, as like a 10- or 11-year-old. And I went with her the first day. Kay and I both did the first day of gymnastics. And here are all these little 10- or 11-year-old girls in their first day of gymnastics. Well, then walk, these other girls walk in and they're different creatures altogether, because they've been in gymnastics since they were five years old. And they're just different human beings, their shoulders, their legs, everything. It just walking across next to these little spindly girls and these, you know, Amazons are walking. I mean, they were beautiful, fine. I'm not saying they were, you know, but I mean, they were strong. Their bodies had been honed by gymnastics training for five, six years, and they look totally different than these girls. I remember uh, my niece, Catherine, was a a very good swimmer in Atlanta, accomplished swimmer in Atlanta. And when I would, you know, we'd be meeting at Thanksgiving or Christmas, and I'd put my, you know, normal arm around a girl and be like, eee, (laughs) way out here, because of those wide shoulders, Her body had been trained and built up through swimming. Well, you see, this is you and me. If we will submit to the training of the word, to the restoring work of the word spiritually, we'll be sleek and supple and strong and more and more beautiful, more and more majestic in the image of God. As I understand Navy SEALs go through like, 30 months of training. The first year is just formal school, but then they do three more six-month tours of in-the-field training. You just think of that correcting and training and all that they learn and accomplish. Think if they didn't have that training. Think if they just put them out without any training. Well, brothers and sisters, you're not meant to meet this world without training. (laughs) without being shaped by this word constantly so that you can encounter the difficulties of this world, including finally death itself. It is a hard world, a broken world, a cruel world that we live in because of sin. And we need all the wonderful resources of his word. This word complete, the man of God or woman of God, the, the, the Christian, to make them capable and proficient and qualified, having all that is necessary to meet whatever demands are put upon them. It means to be sound and to be entire, to put something in full working order. We want to be in full working order as believers, and that's what the Word is able to do for us. It's interesting, this word ready, equipped for every good work. How often this is used, especially in what we call the pastoral epistles, the, the epistles that Paul wrote to Pastor Timothy or Pastor Titus. Uh, for instance, in 2 Timothy 2, 21, in Titus 3, 1, it says, Be ready for every good work. Uh, the women are not to focus on wearing expensive clothes and jewelry, uh, but to wearing good works, 1 Timothy 2.7. Widows in the support of the church are to have a reputation for good works, 1 Timothy 5. The wealthy are to be rich in good works, 1 Timothy 6.18. Young men, show yourselves in all respects to be a model of good works. Titus 2. Titus 3.8, encourage them so that those who believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Or Titus 3.14, let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. And on and on we could talk about how even we are the workmanship of God created for good works. Which means that the word here, which equips us for good work, it forms us into something good. Don't get hung up on the works part. Yeah, you know, little boy scout taking people across the street, you know, that kind of thing. No, it means goodness, goodness that flows out to everybody around you, love, giving yourself away to people. It, it could be the same. it equips us for every aspect of love in our life. The Word of God builds goodness into our lives. It creates the motivation and energy to do good to others for every kind of goodness that's manifested across the boards. It's real love, like John says in 1 John 3:18, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. Real love comes forth for those who are giving themselves. By God's grace to his word and his spirit is working in them through that word. So when the scriptures are nourishing us, we become more and more other oriented, other centered, like God who gave the scriptures. Duh, (laughs) right? Hmm, God who wrote the word to form us into his image because God is radically other centered as he exhibited in the death of Jesus Christ. And we become like that when we give ourselves to this word. And in the context, we must mention that as it follows in chapter 4, the minister's work, this has a special application, or at least an application to ministers as well, that, that we will be furnished fully to do the work of shepherding only as we are given to that word. And that, of course, would apply to the leaders of God's church. Well, he says so that it, that it is profitable, competent, equipped for every good, and that the, the word of God is profitable. Uh, a tremendous practical benefit. You think of the practical benefit of electricity, right? There was made a time when made people made fun of cars. They'll never replace a good old horse and buggy, right? There was a time when people could not imagine the usefulness of a computer. Here's a quote from 77. Ken Olson, president and chairman of, and founder of Digital Equipment Corporation, there's no reason anyone would want a computer in their home. How about every one of us having one in our hand, right? What have you? What have you said about the word? Have you relegated it like that and said it has no practical benefit for me? I'm I'm not going to give extra time to it. I'm not going to sacrifice to get into it. It's just not that important. It's not that practical. It's not that helpful. We must think this, why would we ignore it? We really view it as a waste of time. It's not even worth our time. TV is more valuable. Novels are more valuable. Video games are more valuable. And if you view your time as an investment, um, some of us might have to say, I think the Bible is a bad investment. may not even make the list at all of investments. So, uh, you know, you could give a final word and say, so go out there and study the Bible, be different people. But I would would approach it this way. Start with, and this is where I have to start. I'm just telling you, this is where I have to start. Lord, save me because I have a heart that naturally doesn't want your word and I don't love it. I don't want it. Lord, save me from my pride to think I don't need it. Lord, save me from my idolatry because there's so many other things that I like more than it. And sometimes it doesn't even rate as one of the things I like. Lord, change me according to your promise in in the new covenant. You said you would put your word in my heart. And you would cause me to live it out. And I'm not trying to lay down rules. and you'll notice in the handout that I have, it's just a practical thing to help, but not making a rules every day, every whatever. The Bible just says, be regular in it, okay? Make it a part of your life. Don't ignore it. Thank you. That's my uh, sign. You know, if you were watching an albatross, it's our last word, try to take off, and you may know that an albatross has to have a long runway if he's going to get off the ground. And it's really funny to watch him because you're watching him, and he he has to have a headwind first, just like a kite. You know, if you try to do a kite with no wind, you're not going to get anywhere. Well. They're like a kite. You have to have wind or I can't even begin this process. So they, they go into the headwind and they'll put their wings out and they get off the ground and they come down and they get off the ground and they come down. And oh, he finally lifted off. And your conclusion would be, this bird can hardly fly. He barely can even fly. Boy, you'd be wrong, really wrong. Because he has the widest wingspan of any bird. They get up to 12 feet. Measure that off sometime. And they have this lock in their shoulders so that when they put their wings out, they don't even feel it. They don't have to hold their wings out. Their wings are just out, right? They said putting as much effort forth as riding in your car. That's how much it is for an albatross. And so, as the wind's coming this way, they do S's in and out of the wind. They say with their wind shearing, they get up to 80 miles an hour. They can travel 500 miles in a day and they can fly for eight hours at least. They're months over the open water and only come back to have have babies, right? So, This amazing bird, the the great hero of all seabirds, and he does all of that without even flapping. He's just soaring, just soaring. So it'd be a bad conclusion to think when you're watching him take off, that bird can barely fly because he's the best flyer in the world. And it's a little loose illustration, but I want to say it this way for you. You may have tried to get in the Word before, You may have, I did when I was 10 and 12, 13 years old in my old Methodist church. We had a time where you came down front and I came down front several times, felt convicted and I think I'm gonna go home, I'm gonna read the Bible, you know, and I wouldn't get past Leviticus, uh, (laughs) honestly. And nobody was telling me how and where to read the Bible, which, by the way, your little help could uh, help you on that too, the, the thing we're handing out, but you may have had that experience too and just think, the Bible's not for me, I can't do it, it's too hard, it's this or that, whatever your reason is. But just because you've had trouble taking off doesn't mean, brother and sister, that you can't soar, soar for the rest of your life on the, on the air, on the wind of the precious word that God has given us. And I just urge you, believe it. Embrace it. Rejoice in it. Give yourself to it. Let us pray. Oh, Father, we thank you that you've given us yourself in giving us your word. And Lord, we pray, save us. Rescue us from all that stands in the way of our joyful intake of your word. And Lord, we know it will be a lifetime effort that we must have your grace day in and day out because we have so much in us that opposes your word. But we thank you that your salvation is greater than our sin and that, Lord, your spirit is mighty and he can and will work in anyone who trusts him to change us so that each one of us can be a man or woman or boy or girl of your word, bearing all the fruit, as Jesus said, If you abide in me and my word abides in you, you will bear much fruit. Oh, bless us for Jesus' sake.